continue our study in the book of James. James is an incredibly practical book. I read a quote this week. It says, the book of James is a practical book, and the question it asks and answers is this. If you really believe the basic message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what kind of life will that create on the ground? What will it look like, practically speaking, uh, especially each week that we've looked at and seen that the background of the subject of each text has been what kind of community does that create amongst God's people who believe the gospel. And so that's the question today. If we are coming and we're saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, I love Jesus, and he is the very center of who I am, the defining and redefining point of my life, what does that look like on the ground? What does that look like day to day? And for us as a church, what does it look like as a body uh, of believers? What does it look like for us corporately? I I'm incredibly concerned about your individual lives, but more of my concern uh, is for the corporate life of the church, because your lives will be developed within this community. Uh, we, you can study and you can look, and you can disagree with social science, but the impact of the culture in which you're raised, the family in which you're raised, the people that you associate yourself with, they have an incredible impact on who you become, on what you believe, on how you live. But one study said that the first 10 minutes of your university experience will define, at some level, the rest of your life. Because usually within the first 10 minutes uh, of your university experience, your mom and dad left, and you were there, you establish your friends. You establish who you're going to hang out with, who is going to be speaking into your life day by day, night by night, sharing life together in those beautiful, wonderfully articulated school, school rooms, uh, out in the evenings there. I can still tell you by name. The guys that I met the day I walked into Spencer Dorman Presbyterian College, Bill Surrett, Will Shaver, Steve Park, Lindsay, and Victor Staff, and I still see those guys today. I still know their full names. I know their families. I know where they're from. They had a massive impact on who I am, and hopefully I am them. And so it happens that in community, your life is shaped. And that's the same way in Christian community. And I was listening again, I, I was thinking back to that humor period back in 2005, and I went back to some notes that I'd taken uh, from Tim Keller, who's the pastor at New York and Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and he was teaching on this subject. And in it, he was saying that if you're coming just on Sunday morning, you will be inspired, but you will not be transformed or changed. That you may be encouraged and inspired by something you've heard or maybe the music, and you're caught up in it. But true life change, true transformation happens within deep and profound community of life on life, of living it out day to day, something beyond these walls. It's, I'm glad you're here, uh, but it's beyond these walls that your life is really going to change, which, which leads me to an aside. It's not really an aside. Uh, we have made a, an offer and it's been accepted by a young man, Andrew Shank, and Andrew is going to be coming and joining our staff in July. Uh, along with his wife, Trish, and they're going to be working in the area of spiritual development discipleship. Because what we know and what we believe is, yes, it's important for our students and for their lives, and Tim and uh, his crew are going to be working on developing life-on-life -life relationships with those students where they can be formed and changed. But we want to do the same for our families. And so this fall, we're going to be rolling out uh, home 
uh, and you can build and you can be challenged and you can, uh, as one person this morning, I was talking in pre-parallel uh, this morning before church with a young couple, so one of the things I hope is to, to learn the questions that I don't even know that I'm not asking. Well, that's a great way to explain that. So learn the questions that I don't even realize I'm not asking. Well, you don't know all the things that you're not asking about your marriage, about your life. You have blind spots. And so those are, those are brought out, if you were, in life together. How many of you have been married more than a year? Or were married more than a year? Five years. 10, 15, 20, 25, we were 22. So, how about this go, this has long to 50, 60, let's still see if you guys that's awesome. <laughs> the most powerful human relationship that God designed was marriage, was the spousal relationship. You are changed more by your relationship One pastor put it this way, if all of your life is weak but your marriage is strong, you will always go out of the screen. If all of your life is weak but your marriage if all of your life is weak and your marriage is strong, you'll always go out of the screen. If all of your life is strong but your marriage is weak, you will always go out of the So the marriage has that much power. And so thinking out a step further, your relationship with those most intimate with you that much power. Well, James is bringing to the forefront this week. The community of believers has the power to shape your life. And it needs to be a place of peacekeeping and peacemaking. And it needs to be a place there. He begins in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's basically saying this. It's within the context of peacemaking. It's within the context of shalom, a place that's flourishing, that righteousness is developed. And righteousness is a word uh, that can be that can mean to be made right with God, that you are righteous with God, that you are made right with God. But it also means that you are right with other people, that you are in community and in right standing with those who are around you. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how is it that our community here can be developed into a community of peacemakers, a, a community that thrives on a flourishing of peace. And I would imagine most of you would want that. Peace is a high value for me uh, in my life and in my home. Uh, almost to the point of being an idol. Uh, I desire peace. And when I mean peace, I don't mean a lack of conflict. What I mean is a community that knows how to work through its stuff. How many of you guys have stuff? Yeah. Well, if you notice, the person next to you raised their hand too. And so this beauty of the gospel is it brings all of us with all of our stuff, all, all of our junk, all of our baggage, all of our, some of us, freight cars full uh, for years behind. And we're bringing it together, and we're going to try to figure out how to live life together. If you haven't read Bonhoeffer's book on that, I encourage you to read Life Together by Nietzsche Bonhoeffer. But it talks about how do we live together? How do we do it? And so uh, the first thing we're going to look at, and we're going to read the scripture, it is this idea of a community of peace. If you have your Bibles, flip with me over to uh, James chapter 3, and we're going to be reading all the way down to chapter 4, verse 12. This is God's very word. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge the name? This is God's word. May I bless you to read and hear God. So, the first thing, and I've already really spoken of it in the introduction, is this. Uh, we are called to be a community of peacemakers. We are called to be a community of peacemakers. We are called to be a community that each of us individually takes as our task how to develop shalom, peace, flourishing within our own lives, and then how to develop peace, uh, that flourishing in the lives of others and within the community in which we live. That's what we're called to do. He's saying that it is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, he's really calling us to this thing of saying, James is saying that our lives will never change. That you will never see the righteousness that you desire. You will never see the personal transformation that you desire if you aren't one who desires to be a peacemaker. If you're one who is on the other side of that fence, your life isn't transforming. And the community in which you're in isn't transforming. And so what James is challenging us to, and what our challenge here uh, at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church is this, do we want to have as one of our high values to be a place of peace? To be a community where we are at peace with God, where we encourage one another to have a right relationship, a righteous relationship with God, and then in that to have righteous relationships with one another, to be at peace with one another. It takes a lot of work. It is not something that comes easily to us. And you want to know the biggest problem in it? You want to know the biggest danger to it? It says in here that we should resist the devil and he'll flee from us, and that's important. But the other word, the word that's used there, Diablo, is a word that is oftentimes used for sin. So it's saying you're resisting sin. So what you're really going to have to resist, and the ultimate sin that we have, is the sin of self. It's the sin that says, I'm about myself. I'm about the most important person that I can think of. And everything that I'm going to do is be centered around how I can, can propagate, how I can move forward my agenda. And what the gospel is saying is it's an upside down and reversed way of viewing the world. It's basically saying to the individual and to us, you are to subordinate your hopes, dreams, love, and desire for somebody else's hopes, dreams, and desire more than yourself. Does that come naturally to you, by the way? 
I mean, it just it just flows off. Uh, no, after you first, of course. Let me do whatever you want to do. You get home from a long day, whatever that day is. Maybe you've been hanging out with the kids. Maybe you've been at the office. Maybe you've been doing whatever. And you come home, and the very first thought as you're walking in the door in the evening is this, isn't it? How can I serve the needs of everybody I'm about to meet? <laughs> isn't that what it is? And so you walk in with that, and you know that the people who've been in the house all day are thinking that very same thing. How can I? serve the needs of the person who's about to walk through that door. Because everybody just geared naturally that way. Most of you who've been in a relationship with anybody for more than 30 seconds knows that's not it. And so, if we're called to be a part of peacemaking fun, that we're to sow in peace, and that we're to see righteousness develop, what is the main barrier then to seeing this happen? What's the main barrier in our lives. And James is very clear. He picks up in verse 4. He says, the main barrier to this kind of peacemaking Christian community is pride. It's pride. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You want something and you desire and you can't have it. You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. And then he can move down to verse 6. But he gives more grace that is God. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The main problem in our Christian communities is that too many people make it about themselves. We make it about ourselves, that we come to a church and we determine whether we're going to stay uh, at a church uh, based on whether or not the church meets our particular needs. So most of you have determined as you walked in here uh, that Burgundy Park of the Blue Church meets your needs. That's obvious because you're still here. Uh, it's just you walk in and you say, I like the church. I like the people who are there. I, I get it. And they meet my needs. You, I don't know. I was the... I was the customer service rep for a church of 2,200 people. And here's what the customer service rep on the staff does. When you hear that somebody has left the church, guess whose job it was to call them? That was me. On a church of 2,200 people, there's a lot of reasons why people leave the church. And I can tell you, though, that the one reason underlying all the other reasons was just my needs were not being met, so therefore I'm moving to another church. And I would very lovingly ask people often, so, do you, how often do you come to church? Well, I come almost every Sunday, Bill. Well, what service do you go to? There are three services. Well, I go to the 11 o'clock service. There's about seven or people in the 11 o'clock service. Good. So, are you involved in a Sunday school that has maybe 50 to 100 people? Well, no. Are you involved in one of our home groups that which have 10 to 20 people? Well, no. Are you involved in a men's ministry? No. Women's ministry? No. Children's ministry? You? Are you involved in anything? Others have been Sunday morning. Well, no. No one of your needs were being met. No one knew. No one had any idea. And you came in with the full expectation that everyone would know when you were sick, when your in-laws were sick, when your children were sick, when you needed food, when you were pregnant, when someone died. And it all became about you. And then all of a sudden, when those needs weren't being met, guess what you did? I'm moving on to another church. You know what I always tell folks? 
I hope you find the happiness that you're looking for there. But let me go ahead and tell you something about that pastor because I know him really well, whether I do or not, I say I know him really well. He's going to disappoint you. And the church that you're going to, they're going to disappoint you. Because you're asking someone to know the church ever sat and that's all that you Because you're making it about yourself. That's what Paul, that's what James is saying here. You say, you don't understand. You've made it about yourself. You've turned it into something about you. And at the very center of that, that doesn't mean that this church isn't supposed to help meet your needs, by the way. But we're not off the hook. My job, and the job of the staff, is to actually help some of those people. But what really is in play is if we have a group of people who are coming together by the power of the gospel and are saying, I'm not just going to ask that question. I'm going to ask another question. And the other question I'm going to ask is, how can I serve the needs of the greater body of how can I give of myself? How can I sacrifice? How can I die to some of the things that I call particularly things that I want and need? I'm going to die to them so that I can do something of the greater good. But you know who will never ask that? It's the prideful. That's why it says in verse 6, God opposes the proud. God opposes the one who says that it's all about himself. I think I've kidded with you before. I've had people come in and confess all levels of sin to me and my own. I can't think of the person who's ever walked in my door with the door and really rest C.S. Lewis, in your Christianity, show me a man who says that I have no pride, and I'll show you a man who requires to be And so pride is at the very heart of the issue. And what Paul is saying, or what James excuse me, is saying, is that we need to first be able to identify spiritual pride, and in your life be able to identify it. And the best person who's done that, I think, is God from heaven. How many of you have ever read anything? He's challenging. He, he writes in old English and he is incredibly brilliant. And he says a point and he restates the point and he says it again and restates it again. And then hopefully by the end of it, you can get it. But what he was stating in a book called On Revival, he said the one thing that shocked the revivals that he was a part of more than anything else was quarreling and bickering within the church. It was a lack of peace caused by prideful people within the church. This was Edwards, who was a part of the Great Awakening. He saw God's movement powerfully uh, through his church and through other churches in the Great Awakening in America. And he went back and he visited those same churches that were so on fire. And all of a sudden they were cold and they were dying and people were leaving. And he said, what's the problem? And he found the problem more than anything else was the pride of the individual who led the quarrel in the fire. And so you probably need to identify. And here are six things that he gives that identify a proud person. So think about them in your own life. And no elbowing the person next to you. Okay? <laughs> this isn't a sermon for someone else. This is a sermon for you and for me. He says, first, you can identify spiritual pride in this way. It makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. Spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. But humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own. You ever been around somebody who has an incredible grasp of your faults? Yeah, they're fun to be around, aren't they? Spiritual pride, you're incredibly good at finding other people's faults that are not your own. Pride, the second thing. Pride leads you when you speak of others' faults to have an air of contempt and disdain. Pride leads you when you do speak of those other people's faults to have an air of but humility, that is, in a humble person, it means whenever you do speak of 
only ever do it with grief and with mercy. Some of us may not have much to say. Pride, third thing, pride leads you to quickly separate from people who you criticize or who criticize you. Pride leads you to quickly separate from people who you have criticized or who criticize you. This means that you're cold to them or you avoid them. But spiritual humility means that you stick with people even through difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. That is so key, by the way. I can stop there and spend the rest of the time. One of the things that you're going to find in this church, if you look around, is everybody in this church is going to disappoint you at some time or another. I'll start at the bottom. Kids. I'm going to ask you this question, and by the way, all of you are kids at some point or another. Have your parents ever I'm giving you freedom. Parents, fuck it up. You disappoint me. Really? That's it. You're the first. There, one thing. Absolutely. My son, by the way, if you're wondering. My son, right here. I'm all in, Dad. I'm all in. One of my sons reminds me regularly I never built a tree house for I got it. I got it. Disappointment. And then we watch these tree house shows. $80,000 tree house for
say, I think baptism is important. And I believe this way to do. But if you hold a different belief and you can challenge it within the scripture when we come together, okay, we can be together. We don't have to separate it. Within our church, we have a certain doctrine and system of belief that we have. And our elders and our teachers, uh, they all have to agree to that. So you as a member of the church, and then you don't have to agree to all that. You can be a part of this without leaning on every single thing. And so spiritual pride says that everybody has to believe the exact same thing and get rid of all the other people. The fifth thing, a proud person either loves to confront because you might win, or proud people refuse to confront because they don't want criticism. A proud person either loves to confront because he likes winning, or a proud person refuses to confront because he don't want criticism and controversy. But a humble person confronts when necessary. If you uh, love other people, if you're humble, you will confront when it's necessary. Confrontation is an important part of life. Each making takes confrontation. If you see me going and hanging out in the middle of 278, what should you do for me? Right. Yeah. Right. I'd, I'd rather you come do something else. If I'm going to go lay down in the middle of 278, what do I need you to do? I need you to confront me. I need you to say, Bill, the choices that you're making, they're wrong. They're going to lead to a very bad ending for you. So I'm going to confront you. Now, if you're a proud person, I don't want to get messed up in that. But a humble person steps in. And confront when necessary. So confrontation is a part of peacemaking. I want you to understand that. And then finally, we need to keep moving a little quicker. A proud person is often unhappy and sorry for himself or for herself. A proud person is often unhappy and sorry for himself or herself. Self-pity is the flip side of the Self-pity is the person who isn't getting their way. It's the proud person who's determined that this is what I should have, and I haven't gotten what I should get, and therefore I'm having a pity party on uh, it. A proud people are filled with self-pity because first, they're so sure that they know how life ought to be. And secondly, they're sure that they deserve a good life. But humble people say, I deserve to be cast off and only God's grace, and I live. And I don't know what's best for me. As a result, he or she says, says Proud people are always filled with self-pity and an unhappy life. But humble people seldom are. They have no self-pity at all. Isn't that amazing? A humble person basically says this. I don't know Think about when you got into a pity party for yourself. And some of you have to be a couple of really good for this party. The reason Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and 
purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to glory. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So one of the keys to finding and developing this humility will end with these thoughts. First, what is humility? Humility is that incredible inside confidence of your work to God. That God is taking care of the circumstances of your life. Humility is that incredible inside confidence of your work to God. That you know that you are so valuable to God and that He is so passionate about you that it's okay for everything else to happen. For other people to be blessed, for other people to be blessed, for all of these things to come your way because you know who you are in Christ. As one person wrote it, humility is not thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself. It's not thinking too highly of yourself, and it's not thinking too lowly of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. The taking self out of the middle of these things. And so how do you develop it? Really, verse 4 and 5, I'm going to highlight it for you. You adulterous people, you probably call the West House of Development Humility. You adulterous people, it actually says in the Greek, you adulteresses, the female, plural of that. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, God wishes to be a friend of the world. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose that it's not no purpose, but the scripture says, he yearns to jealousy of the spirit that he has made him dwell in us? The first thing that you need to see in developing your sense of humility is God's compassion. He uses marital language, and he uses the language of a husband's passion for his wife. He says, these people who are running away, don't you realize how passionate God is for you as a husband who is passionate for his wife? As a husband desires his wife and will defend his wife against all oncoming. A husband who is standing together. Man, think about it this way. Women, you can think about this way too, but it's in the masculine terms. If there is somebody who's making an advance on the person that you love more than anything else, how are you going to respond? Are you just going to sit back and I'm going to let that individual, if some man comes to make notes in my life, they're going to get to know Bill and Kevin very, very well. They're going to see that I am incredibly passionate about my wife. And if you don't get to speak to her that way, you don't get to overture her that way, you know, I've told my boys this, that, and Zach can probably let me know, that I've looked at man to man and eye to eye and say, nobody, even you three, get to speak to my wife in this way. She is my wife, so you might want to back down. That's a passionate husband. That's a passionate lover for their lover. And God is saying, if you want to begin to develop a humility within you, then you need to hear the voice of your lover in heaven, your husband in heaven, who is looking at you and saying, I am that passionate about you. I will defend you. I will come and I am jealous for the grace that I give. I am jealous for the spirit that I put in you. I love you that much. You can be safe in my passion and love for you. So many of you are so, you're trying to work it out for yourself. You think that whatever you get, you've got to get for yourself. And God is saying, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much I will defend you, how much I will care for you, how much I will take all of your needs and burdens and I will put them on myself. If you let me, you need to hear that language. And at some level, it's a violent language, isn't it? Ladies, how would you feel? Let's turn it into a How would you feel if some man overturned you and you heard your husband speak with that language? You need to step away from my mind. Would it make you feel endeared? Or love? Or what's happened in our society so many times 
we've lost our voices. We don't stand and speak when we should stand and speak. And, and we make the people around us question whether we really love them. Our, our children question whether or not we're passionate about them. Our wives question that. And God is saying, I want you to hear more than anything else. I am incredibly passionate and jealous for you. And I will pursue you and I will continue. That creates you. It may not seem like it, but will create you in deep and profound humility. And the reason that it does is I can then say to somebody else, if you're getting ahead and God's blessing you and good things are happening in your life and you won the lottery and I'm messing with money, but, or you got to go voting and I didn't, or you caught the big fish and I didn't, or you got to do whatever and I didn't, I can go, you know what, that's okay. I can celebrate that person. I can humble myself. I can put stuff, because I know one thing. I know that my God is passionate for And he's going to take And I can then celebrate but if I'm all about me and I don't trust that God's going to take care of me, I can't it. It is counter to my very being. Does that make sense to you? Some of you have looks like Bill was trying to get the beach. Well, I'll let you get there. But recognize this, that he yearns jealously over you. Your God, don't read a story of the today. <laughs> And the second thing that you need to see to develop humility in your life comes from verse 10. You have to see the end instead of the now. You have to see the end instead of the now. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt. You have to know the end. Because is it going to cost you something to humble yourself now? Is it? Yes. There is a cost to humbling yourself now. There is a cost to giving things away, to putting yourself second. There is a cost. But here's what God says to you. And it's a promise that he says to you. This isn't the only touch interpreting it. This isn't the only touch speaking about This is God saying, I will exalt you one day. I will raise you up. All the things that you've done in private, I notice. All the things that you have done that no one else sees, I see, and I will exalt you one day. I will lift you up. I will take you and place you in a place of highest exaltation. That's incredible. Read Paul in Ephesians 1. It just gets me excited. And Jesus, and you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. Isn't that awesome news? That your name is written upon his hand and you are seated with Christ above all rule and authority with him today. And he's saying, you have more dignity, you have more love, you have more honor than you ever could have desired in this life. And I've already given it to you. So instead of thinking about the now so much, think about the now. You want to know what the now looks like? The now looks like, I want my now, where I am, how I am, and I have to be together. And if I don't get it, You know one of the beautiful things that I've seen that we have impacted in this year is that some of you have been so sensitive to sacrificial. And you're in an age in your life where you may need to be the benefits of what you bring to the thinking of. Some of you are given and you participated in the life of the church in 
Thank you. 